Father, we do, as we've sung and as we've read from your word and as we have, who know you, trusted and banked our life in, the work you've accomplished for us on the cross, we exalt your name and we delight in your glory. We have every comfort through every spiritual blessing that you've given to us in Christ because we have been redeemed by the blood of the cross. We have been given the gift of the Spirit and we have been given every encouragement and hope in your written word to think much on all that you have accomplished for us in your dear and beloved Son and all that we have promised to us in your holy word and we wait for and anticipate as your people. And I pray now as we come to your word and then as we come to your table that you would so prepare our hearts and stir up in us deep affections and true affections and strengthened faith in all that is represented here by your own institution, our Lord, when you were still here on earth in your last days to look to Christ, to look to you and to find there our hope and all of our joy and desire. We want to come as a holy people as well and so prepare our hearts. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. Matthew 26, 26, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. As we continue to march through these final days, indeed now even coming to the final hours of our Lord's life here on earth as he heads to the cross, the very reason for which he came. And when we come to this scene this morning in verses 26 through 30, we come to one of the most significant moments recorded for us in the Lord's walk to the cross. The Lord's movement toward that that moment when he would stand in our place as an atonement for the sin of his people. And it is a moment here then that draws us into one of the deepest motivations for our humble worship of Christ and for all that God has accomplished for us in him. It's where we find the deepest comfort for our souls the deepest motivations and calls for a holiness of life. It is then the establishment of the Lord's Supper, called so by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, the Lord's Supper. And we are preparing our hearts this morning to celebrate it together. And so here in this passage, Jesus takes what is the Passover feast that we'll look at a little more closely later, and he transforms it into a meal to picture his sacrifice for the sins of his people, indeed for our own sins who know him, and to encourage our hearts and strengthen them with the promise of grace and the hope that we have in him. Let's read our passage and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's notice first, looking back at verse 26, a picture in the past. A picture in the past or a picture of the past, of past God's past act of redemption for his people through the exodus. Look at the beginning there of verse 26. He says, while they were eating, that might remind you of verse 20, or excuse me, verse 21, where he says, as they were eating, he's picking up a little later on the same meal that they were sharing together. Now, however, the events of verses 21 through 25 have taken place, as well as all the events recorded for us, or most of them in John chapter 13, where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples as they were sharing in this meal. This is the Passover meal, which we've already spoken about somewhat. It is also known as the Seder Seder meal, and Seder just means set order. In other words, it is a prescribed order for this meal that was to act as a meal of remembrance, a picture of God's redemption for his people. Now, it's not 100% sure whether Judas is with them at this point. Matthew and Mark both suggest that he is. Luke chapter 22 implies that he, or excuse me, Matthew and Mark suggest that Judas has already left at this point. Luke implies that he's still with them at this point in the meal. And John simply doesn't mention the Lord's words of institution. So it's not exactly clear whether Judas is or is not at the meal with them at this point. I tend to lean toward the fact that he is not, but it is an open question. If he is with them, of course, it only increases the depth of his betrayal and the the accountability that he has before God after hearing such words as these that we'll look at this morning. Now, to capture the significance and understand the framework of this meal, I want to begin and take just a few minutes to get an overview of the kind of meal that they would have been sharing in. The first century celebration of the Passover meal. It, of course, has changed in some of its elements today since the destruction of the temple. They're no longer able to bring the lamb to the temple to be sacrificed and so forth. Now they have a lamb shank bone there. But let's get an idea first of the kind of meal that Jesus would have been sharing with his disciples on that night. You'll remember as we looked only very briefly at Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 through 13. And it's there that God established the first Passover meal for his people in his deliverance of them from the nation of Egypt. It was... A meal that was to be shared in by a family or a family with neighbors. Josephus mentions that there needed to be at least 10 people together. And so there were at least 10 people as groups came together. And they were to celebrate this meal in the home. You'll remember that on the 10th of Nisan, which was later changed to Nisan. It was first originally called Abib, which is roughly equivalent to our April On the 10th of this month, they were to go out and they were to take a lamb, a one-year-old male lamb without defect. They were to bring it into the home. This lamb was to be in their home for four days. On the 14th of Nisan, they were then to slaughter the lamb and take hyssop and spread its blood on the doorpost of their home. And this act of obedience then was a sign to God that they had indeed followed his command and his sentence of death on the firstborn in the land was spared them on both man and beast. 
The lamb was to be roasted with fire and completely consumed and eaten at twilight with all the prescribed meal. This meal consisted of unleavened bread and bitter herbs. It was to be eaten in haste. And he says in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 12, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And it was to symbolize the immediate readiness of his people as God was about to deliver them from under the bondage of the nation of Egypt. It was a meal then that symbolized God's deliverance of his people. Once Israel was in the land, as we've mentioned in the past, in Deuteronomy 16, he gives new instructions. And he says, the place where he will establish his name, that is where they are later to bring the sacrifices. And they bring the lamb to the temple. It was there that the Israelite would sacrifice the lamb, would kill the lamb, put it to death. The blood would be collected by the priest. And then that blood collected by the priest would be poured onto the base of the altar. The lamb would then be taken home by the worshiper and there shared in over the Passover meal. Now, after the return from exile and the building of the second temple, and by the time of the first century, the rabbis had constructed a fairly strict set of orders for this meal. In other words, how they were to celebrate this meal, that is, the seder meal. And that said, though, however, it is difficult to know the precise elements, the exact words that were spoken and how it was celebrated through, uh, by the Jews throughout this Uh, time period. However, we can get a pretty good idea by looking at the Mishnah, which is the oral law written down around the second century BC, around 200 AD, coming into the third century, and from some statements by Josephus and others. So let's just briefly consider what kind of meal they would have been in Uh, sharing in here. First of all, it's a meal that is structured around four cups of wine. Four cups of wine. Likely this wine was mixed with hot water. That's mentioned in the Mishnah, actually. And it was wine, then, that was to represent, each of these cups of wine represent different elements of God's promise in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Let me read it for you. Don't turn there. He says in Exodus chapter 6 this, I am the Lord and I will bring you out, promise number one, from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage, promise number two, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm, number three, and with great judgments and then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. The first cup is known as the cup of sanctification or Kiddush. And it's based on the promise, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second cup is the cup of plagues drawn from the words, and I will deliver you from their bondage. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And it comes from the promise, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth cup is a cup of praise taken from I will, the promise, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. The first cup then, the first cup of wine, the Kiddush, the sanctification. In this cup, the family gathered was seated around or not seated or reclining around uh, the table. The wine was poured into the cup, and the head of the table said something along these words, You are blessed, our God, ruler of the world, creator of the fruit of the vine. You are blessed, God, and you hollow Israel and the festive season. The wine is drunk, and at this point, most likely, each person has their own cup that is filled before them, and they drink from the wine of this cup. The hands are washed, 
And it's possibly at this point, this first washing of the hands, it's hard to be too precise, that the Lord then girded himself with a towel and went around the table where they were reclining and washed the feet of his disciples. After this first cup and after the washing of the hands, the appetizer was served, which consisted of unleavened bread and lettuce and the haroseth, which was a mixture made of nuts and fruit pounded together and mixed with vinegar. Bitter herbs were dipped into this, possibly to lessen some of the bitterness of them. When eating the lettuce or parsley, which was also passed around in a dish with salted water, which was to symbolize the salt, or the salt was to symbolize, and it was to be a reminder of the tears the Israelites shed during their bondage in Egypt, and the green herb was a reminder of a new beginning. And it's likely during this first cup of the meal that Matthew introduces this scene back in verse 21. The second cup is the cup and the Haggadah, which stands for the telling. In other words, it is a recounting of God's acts of redemption. In this second cup, the wine is poured and the hands are again washed. And the Passover meal, the main Passover meal is begun. And this meal consists again of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, fruit spice sauce, which is squashed and grated fruits such as figs, dates, raisins, apples, mixed with nuts or almonds, and spices mixed with wine or vinegar. Doesn't sound very appetizing, but all of it having its own significance. At this point, the head of the table would offer prayers, break the bread, and distribute to all on the table. And after offering a blessing for the second cup, others would give a response, and then the meal would begin. Now, it's at this point that if there were young children present, remember this is primarily a family meal celebrated as a family, that they were then prompted to ask four questions, four questions of the meal. And this is where the telling comes in. The Mishnah stated it this way. They were to ask this, Why is the night, this night different from other nights? For on other nights we eat seasoned food once, but this night twice. On other nights we eat leavened or unleavened bread But this night all is unleavened. On other nights we eat flesh roasted, stewed, or cooked. But this night all is roast. Some say that there were four sets of questions differing slightly from that. The questions about the unleavened bread. Questions about the bitter herbs. Questions about dipping the vegetables twice. And the need for reclining rather than sitting at the table. In response to these questions, the head of the table would then answer them and give a history and recount the history of God's redemption of his people. And afterwards say something along these lines. We are bound to give thanks, to praise, to glorify, to honor, to exalt, to extol, and to bless him who wrought all these wonders for our fathers and for us. He brought us out from bondage to freedom, from sorrow to gladness. From morning to a festal day and from darkness to great light and from servitude to redemption. So let us say before him the hallelujah. And then after that admonition, the first part of the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118, would be recited. And they would share in the meal. And at this point, they could drink as many cups of wine as they desired. Again, it was somewhat diluted wine with hot water, most likely. But here they simply enjoyed then the rest of the meal. It's possibly at this point that the Lord spoke the words recorded for us here in verse 26. This is my body, which is given for you. The third cup, which is the cup of blessing and redemption, brought us then to another point in the meal. 
At this point, no more food is eaten. The room, some say, was cleaned and prepared and picked up from the meal that was just eaten. The, the third cup of wine is poured. And after drinking the third cup, the remainder of the Hallel, Psalms 115 through 118, are then recited by those who are present. And that's likely the hymns that are mentioned in verse 30. If you'll notice, he says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. At this cup was a little bit different. This cup was not, they didn't drink each individually from their cup, but it was a communal cup that was then passed around, symbolizing the communal aspect of redemption that God's people share in. And it's likely here that Jesus spoke the words of verse 28 when he says, This is my blood of the covenant. The fourth and the final cup is a cup of praise. It is the last cup of the meal. If you'll notice in verse 29, the Lord skipped this cup. It is a time, it was a cup that he was to share in only upon his return. So with this meal that Jesus is sharing in with his disciples, he does something utterly stunning. Utterly stunning. This was a part of the history of God's people for generations after generations it was a central aspect of their worship in which they celebrated their identity as God's people and his redemption of them from the land of Egypt. And now Jesus is going to transform it into a picture of himself and God's work in him. Secondly, then, it's a picture of the present, our redemption in Christ. And he utterly transforms this meal. It is a picture that is going to utterly introduce and show the new realities that God was bringing his people into. It is a new exodus, one accomplished by Christ himself. And Jesus reinterprets the significance of the meal to signify his atoning sacrifice for the salvation of his people. This is exactly where Matthew has been heading ever since the beginning of the gospel. If you'll remember, he says, don't turn there, in verse 21, that Mary is going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And who is this one that's going to save his people from his sins? Nonetheless, than Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So this is where Matthew has been taking all of the ministry of Jesus. Everything that he has done has been leading up to this point. This revelation of Christ. This act of Christ and the redemption of his people. And I want you to notice just one thing first. That it is a testimony to the divine nature of Christ. It might be easy to skip over and to miss. But consider what's being done here. He is... He is utterly transforming a meal, standing in the place of God. He is, he is introducing his people with himself at the center into a new epic of their identity that's going to center around him. He is showing that he's going to die, but he's not going to die merely as a man. He's not going to die merely as a martyr. He's going to die as God robed in flesh. He's going to give his life as a substitute for his people. He's going to accomplish every promise that God has ever given to his people. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. He says this, For as many are the promises of God in him, they are yes, 
Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. He is accomplishing that. He's preparing them and he's preparing us to see the glory of the work that he is about to accomplish. And he reveals this for them, for you and for me to remind us that God is doing this for us and for his glory. Now, when God instituted the Passover in Exodus 12, we mentioned this before, but he instituted a very change or a change in the very identity of God's people. He said, this is to be the first of months for you. In other words, your whole, the whole structure of your religious identity of your worship of me is to begin here. God instituted that. God is the one who laid this out for his people. The same God who was going to deliver them through the plagues is the God who was defining their worship. And he instituted a feast that marked the birth of the nation and gave them their identity. There is no greater reverence for the meal, for the Passover meal, that one could recognize than to understand that this was given by God himself as a picture of his own nature and the nature of his relationship with his people. And here Jesus is now sharing in this meal with his disciples around the table. And as he's sharing in this feast, which God instituted, he completely changes it to point to himself. To himself. This is astounding. In other words, when he does this, he's acting in the full authority of God. And he's making a feast that was instituted by God for the worship of God and making it a feast about himself and the worship of himself for God's people. This is absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. And the disciples would have felt this. They would have felt this. They would have been amazed. He's essentially saying that he is the God of their salvation. He is their God. He's the giver of all of the feast. Every sacrifice, every priesthood, every promise is fulfilled in him. It's for us as a reminder of the testimony of his sacrifice for us as his people. And by doing that, beloved, when we come to the table, it is a testimony of God to us as his people of his eternal and divine and electing love. He is the one who established it for his people to show that you are not like any people among the nations. You are a people that I have chosen out. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's on you, Israel, they were to see that God has set his love, and it's no less for us, the people of God of the new covenant, where he here gives in this table a testimony of his love for us, his love for us in his Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a testimony of the love and of the grace of God for his people. Look at what he says here in verse, the end of verse 26. As they're sharing in this meal after blessing it, he broke it, he gave to his disciples and he said, Take 
eat. This is my body. Luke twenty two nineteen adds, which is given for you. Which is given for you. An incredibly powerful statement. This is, again, their God. This is, again, the one who is standing here and acting as their deliverer. This is the one whom Paul said, though he existed in the form of God, he took on the form of a slave, that he might be the one that could go to the cross and display the ultimate act of obedience to God. And he did this for you, beloved. He did this for all who trust in him, for all who come to him. And what does he mean by saying, this is my body? This is my body as he hands them the bread. Well, let's say what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that the bread that he's handling them actually turns into his physical body, either at the moment they touch it or at the moment that it enters into their body. It remains bread throughout. It is not a way of him saying that by eating this and only by eating this bread that turns into my body, you will sustain your spiritual life and your salvation. He's not saying that. The Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation that developed much later. He's not saying that. But that is how many of us who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church hear it and understood it. Let me, I don't want to take a great deal of time on this, but let me at least note for you three reasons why that's not what he's saying. First of all, and it's the most obvious, he is physically present with them. He's the one handing them this bread. It is absurd to think that the disciples would have thought that he was actually that bread. He was distinct from the bread. He was handing it to them. Both body and bread were distinct. Second of all, it fails to understand the use of metaphor. And a metaphor is this. We use that term a lot, but it's essentially this. It's when one thing is spoken of as being another. One thing is spoken of as being another. One old author, E.W. Bullinger, in a classic work, Figures of Speech Used in the Bible, helpfully explains it this way, comparing it with a simile. And just listen, because this is important. The simile gently states that one thing is like or resembles another, and the metaphor boldly and warmly declares that one thing is the other. The idea here is that of representation. Representation. He's saying this bread now represents my body, which is given for you. And thirdly, to see this as some kind of actual transformation of the substance is to miss. Jesus' use of this figure of speech throughout Scripture. And it's a common way that the Hebrews spoke. Let me just give you an example. John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door. In chapter 15, I am the vine of John. To his people, he says, you are the salt of the earth. In Matthew 13, he says, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. You see, understand, this is how they spoke. That's clearly how they would have understood it. And interestingly, nobody believes that the cup itself is actually the covenant, though he says clearly in Mark 14, this cup is the new covenant. Clearly, they understood it was representative. It was symbolic. This is my body means this. This bread represents my body, which I am going to give for you. 
So what then does it mean and what is its significance? The unleavened bread is described in Deuteronomy 16.3 as the bread of affliction, bread of affliction. It was a reminder to Israel of her bondage in Egypt out of which God delivered them. And here Jesus is transforming it to represent his body that would act and be given for the deliverance of his people. Now there's two ways that this is typically understood. One is to say, this is my body, which is broken for you, which is going to be broken for you. Therefore, to emphasize the idea of brokenness and speak of the suffering of the cross, the suffering of the crucifixion that he is soon to undergo. It also speaks... And others emphasize this point of the fellowship and the communion that God's people share with him. And the emphasis is on the fact that he gave it to them. That he gave it to them. But the fact is that the right place to emphasize is the bread itself. It is his body that was going to be broken in a sacrificial death. A body in which he was going to suffer. And it was a body and a suffering, an atoning suffering that was to be shared in by all of his people. And he says, eat, take of this and eat from it. Here, symbolizing our participation individually and together in his suffering and in his death. It is his body that he gives for us, symbolized in this bread. It is a body that we receive by faith. And there is a sense in which it is to say that we who know Christ as well and who have his life in us, are also going to share in that suffering. There is a sense secondarily where it has that idea. Jesus particularly warned his people of that. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians along these lines. An often misunderstood verse, and I bring it up because it's, it's so misunderstood often. He says this, Paul does. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh... I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's not saying in any way that the afflictions and the suffering of Christ were lacking in their atoning benefits. That goes against the whole letter. It is simply to say that as long as sin is in this world and as long as God's people who bear his name and share in his life are in this world, there is more suffering meant for him against his name, those who hate the name of Christ. It is a suffering that now we as his people bear as we live in this world. But there is a sense where it can be reminded that As we bear his name, we too will suffer. But the primary point is this, is his saying, eat. And as you do, I am giving you a symbol to show your participation in my death and all of its benefits. It's a symbolic sharing of us as his people in his death. It is an acknowledgement when we come to the table that his death is our death. His suffering is our suffering. That what he accomplished in giving his body for us was accomplished for us, his people. We share in it. Listen to what 1 Peter 2.24 says along these lines. 1 Peter 2.24, he says this, precious words. And he himself bore our sins in his body 
on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. It is a body given for our redemption. It is a body that he took on to himself so that he could bear the weight and the fullness of the penalty of sin that was meant for us. It's also, as we come to the table, we remember that it is a symbol then, as we who share in that sacrifice, we who share in the death of Christ on our behalf, are to then share in it in holiness and purity. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When we come together as his people to share in his table, to remember his body that was given to us, we come to do it as a holy people. A people who are identifying with his sacrifice. A people who are identifying with our break from sin and a life to righteousness. It's a symbol as well of our death to ourself and faith in Christ who gave his body for us. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. And when we partake in this, and when you partake in this meal, it's essentially saying and being reminded anew again and again that I have been crucified with Christ. His death is my death. I no longer live for myself, but I live for him who has redeemed me and called me to himself. Next, he took the cup, and it says, When he had taken the cup, he said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Again, an absolutely astounding statement. This is, as was mentioned, the third cup of blessing, the cup of redemption, where it comes with the promise of God in Exodus 6, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. It is essentially to say this, that every sacrifice, every promise of redemption, every act of forgiveness on God's behalf for the repenting believer, every act of deliverance by God for the nation of Israel, every act of the priest in offering up the sacrifice is here culminated in the person of Christ. This is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant. Astounding statement. Central to the worship of the Israelites was what? Blood. Blood. It was a bloody worship. It was a bloody religion. Blood consecrated the tabernacle with all of its parts. If you remember when God established it, there was to be a sacrifice. And what? Blood was to be spread everywhere. It's in the Exodus chapter 24, he says this, Moses took half the blood after the sacrifice of the bulls and and such. He said, Moses took half the blood and he put it in the basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar and then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. 
And the people all said that all that he has said we will do. And then Moses in verse 8 took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. It was a bloody act of consecration. It was a bloody act and it was blood that marked the redemption of God's people and their worship and approach to him. Every day there were to be sacrifices and the blood of animals was offered upon the altar for the Israelite. Every year on the day of atonement, the blood of the sacrificed animal was then spread on the temple. And later, this was spread on the temple by the high priest. Every Passover of the Jews who gathered from all over the land came then to slaughter once a year the lamb which was to mark God's deliverance of his people in blood. Josephus notes, he suggests anyway, that there were 256,500 sacrifices on the day of Passover when the lambs were sacrificed in the temple. He mentions that there were over 2 million, nearly 3 million people that those sacrifices represented. But this produced an incredible amount of blood. Of blood that was pouring out from the altar, gushed out from the temple area into the valley below. One author noted this that it was an enormous amount of blood poured out from the altar site in a very short period of time. And eventually it drained into the Kidron Valley just east of the temple. And for several days after Passover, make that brook run bright crimson. That was bloody. It was bloody. That was on purpose. Leviticus 17, 11 through 14, following the establishment of the Day of the Atonement, explains the significance of the blood. Why the blood? Verse 11 says this of Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, for it is by reason of the life that makes atonement. Stated in simple terms, it means that blood carries everything that is necessary for life in man and beast. When the blood of the animal is spilled, its life is taken away. And the emphasis then on the blood is this, the life that is taken in violent sacrifice as a substitute. That's the point. It's reminiscent somewhat of... God's word to Noah in Genesis 9, 6. He who sheds man's blood. In other words, he who violently takes the life of another. From him, his life will be required. So when the blood of the sacrifice was offered, the blood was the symbol of this. A life was taken and substituted for another. That was the symbolism. It was a picture of death. It was a picture of a life taken, and its purpose was primarily symbolic. It wasn't the actual molecules of the blood itself. It is what that blood that covered all of the furniture within the tabernacle represented, namely that a substitute life had been given in place of those who have sinned. And so Jesus says here, my blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is to say this, that his death, his life is the foundation again of every promise of God. His life that's going to be given, his life that's going to be violently taken away as he voluntarily lays it down for his people. 
It is to say that every forgiveness, every act of forgiveness by God for his people is now centered in on this one act of Christ. Listen to how it's explained in Hebrews 9. Just listen to it as I read this. A few verses. He says this. Therefore, even the first covenant, this first covenant is speaking of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God gave his people through Moses, was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, we read this, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. He was offered once. To bear the sins of many. Again, stated simply, that is to say this, that under the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant to the nation of Israel through Moses, there were innumerable sins that were exposed in the heart of the people. There were innumerable transgressions that the people have committed that piled and piled up a testimony of their guilt before God. Of the lack of holiness of man. There were innumerable sins that exposed not only their guilt, but called rightly for an act of divine justice. God met symbolically that act of divine justice in giving to them animals to be sacrificed in their place to say divine justice requires your life and your death but in your place this animal is given the life of this animal will count for your life however the death of an animal could never satisfy God's justice and God's wrath against human sin that's why he says this was only a shadow He says in chapter 10, verse 3, In those sacrifices, all of those sacrifices that were given under the Mosaic Covenant, all of the sacrifices that were given during the Passover, during the Day of Atonement, during the daily worship of His people Israel, in all of those sacrifices, listen, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So all of those sacrifices merely anticipated a final sacrifice, which Jesus is here saying, I am that sacrifice. This is my blood of the covenant, not the blood of a lamb, not the blood of a bull, not the blood of a goat, but it is my blood, my blood, the one of whom you said you are the Christ, the son of the living God, his death. His shed blood did satisfy divine wrath against sin. It did satisfy every demand of divine justice and righteousness. 
It is his life that was given as a substitute for sinful men. And that believing man then in him can say that Christ has rendered divine justice for me against my sin. And God held it up for all to see, to say this was and this alone was the sacrifice that is acceptable. Listen to what he says. God displayed him publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction in his blood, that is in his shed blood, his death, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of God's divine plan is here centered on this person of Christ. His death, his shed blood, his life laid down had infinite value. Not simply because of his human nature, but because of his divine nature. It was the Son of God. This is why it's important to recognize his divinity not over here and only here but throughout. This isn't simply an innocent man. This is the innocent lamb of God given by God himself who indeed is the son of God. It had infinite value. This is why by the way Paul could say in Acts 20:28 20, that the church was purchased by God's own blood. He says it is the church of God which God purchased with his own blood. God doesn't have blood. He's spirit. But God the Son partook of a human nature that he might give his life violently taken, though voluntarily laid down for his people. This is why we sing things like cross of Jesus, cross of sorrow, where the blood of Christ was shed. Perfect man on thee did suffer. Perfect God on thee has bled. His death then provides the grounds of the new covenant. A new relationship. Forgiveness of sins. A covenant which in all who are a part of this covenant have the blessings of the covenant. Forgiveness of sin. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Union with Christ. True sonship in Christ as adopted sons and daughters. It is the new covenant promised and here made a reality in the person of Christ. Listen to Jeremiah 31. This is, by the way, the only place that that exact language is used in all of the Old Testament. But he says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Passover, by covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, their sin, their sin continually kept them from the full realization of the promises of God. But this is the covenant, verse 33, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. In other words, everybody who is a part of this covenant will know its reality. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Listen, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. It is the removal 
of sin. This is my blood of the covenant. Essentially, this is my life that is given in exchange for you, my suffering to atone for your sin, my death that will allow you to share in my life so that you may participate in my kingdom, in my inheritance, and know my Father. My blood was given for the forgiveness of your sins. And it is, in fact, the only thing that could satisfy for the forgiveness of sins, but it does satisfy And this is why we sing. This is one of my favorite hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. Listen to another. Behold the lamb, the spotless lamb who takes away our sin. The debt debt we faced was not a waste but paid in full by him. Gaze on Christ, our sacrifice, on altar made with wood. Exalt the Lamb, the worthy Lamb, who bought us with His blood. And so this is what we celebrate this morning in the table. The sacrifice, the one who says, this is my blood of the covenant, my life given in exchange for yours. Let's note lastly, briefly, before we come to the table. Not only is it a picture of our present salvation, but it is a promise of our hope in the future. Listen to his last words there in verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This here would be then the last or the fourth cup, the cup of praise. And it's, he skipped it. It's not likely that all of the disciples skipped it. We don't know. But Jesus skipped it. He skipped it. And in skipping it, he gave a promise and says, I will drink this cup. But not now. I will participate in this with you again. But not now. There's first a cross that I have to undergo. There's a payment that needs to be made. And beloved, when we come to this table, it's the fulfillment of this promise that we wait for. We wait to be with Him. We wait for His return. We wait to share in this meal with Him again in the future. When we drink it with Him in the kingdom of The Father, the kingdom of the Father. And so as the Passover meal remembered God's deliverance and looked forward to His promise, Christ fulfilled it all. And now that having been fulfilled, He has gone away, and we in the same way await for His return, and we do so in the Lord's Supper where we remember His sacrifice. And when we come, we live in light of its implications and is giving us hope looking forward to His return when we will see Him face to face and live with Him forever in the joy of His presence. And you know, there is that sense and where we come and we come humbly realizing that we don't come in an unworthy manner. But we must not also forget the reality that we come and we come with the joy of God's people. And there's no doubt when Christ himself was giving these words, I think, that he had a sense of joyful anticipation of that day. It was Christ as much saying that I want to share that day with you. I look forward to that day of being with you in my kingdom. I look forward to the day where I return and establish it and will never be separated from you ever. There's a sense even where Hebrews tells us that Christ had that. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
He went to the cross despising its shame, but only because it was the pathway to the provision of salvation for you and for me and for all of God's people who have trusted him. And so when we come to the table, Christ himself invites us to this table to share in his joy and in the joy of his salvation, the joy of his presence by the Spirit, the joy of anticipation of his return. And so as we prepare here, I would remind us then that this is an ordinance that is for believers. It is not an ordinance that is for unbelievers. It is not meant for your conversion other than it might draw you to repent and trust into Christ. But it is something that God has given to his church. So we would encourage you and I would say that if you don't delight in the presence of God, then don't take the table. If you're not truly a believer in Christ, it is not something that is for you yet. But it could be this very day if you turn and trust in him. This is for those then believers who are not only trusting in Christ for sin, but believers who are not, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, harboring malice or wickedness or any kind of sin in your heart. So even for believers, it is a time to come and rejoice in his salvation and his forgiveness, but with a life that's being offered to him as a sacrifice to walk with him in holiness and in truth. So you want to make sure that we come and experience the full joy of it by coming to him in faith, coming to him in humility, coming to him trusting in Christ. If you don't know Christ, if you're not yet sure that you are belonging to him, then let it pass. But don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to enter into his kingdom. Let's pray and the men will come forward to pass the elements. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, not only to give us your word, but to give us, even as you did your people of old, a reminder, something to stand before us constantly, which is why we celebrate it as often as we do. To remind us constantly of the glory of the grace in which we stand. The wonder of the sacrifice that was laid down for our behalf. To remind us again of the reality in which we are to walk in this world, which is the reality of our redemption. The reality of your return. The reality of being with you forever in your kingdom. Encourage us with these truths and encourage us to walk in light of them, worthy of the manner with which we have been called. I pray that now would be the true affection of your people in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.